0: I think what's been really hard is trying to work out how much to spoiler, because you do have to spoil a bit, you know, if people develop, if things happen in the first book, it's sort of inevitable that you're going to need to refer to them in subsequent books. There's been a bit of a learning curve. i Looked up some of the worst reality television shows that have ever happened, okay? Who's the daddy? And it really did feature a woman who had to spend time with 12 men, all of whom could be her biological father, and she had to find out which one it was. I mean, that is just brutal. I know several older teenagers who desperately want to be on on Love Island you know that that is kind of their their career goal and it makes me desperately sad it
1: really does. Welcome to Bestsellers. I'm Natalie
2: Jameson and I'm Phil Williams and we have a returning guest today we love a returning guest and I just um I've not kept score have you got a chart of how many people have returned and who's the most returnee? That's not even we haven't. A we
1: haven't had anybody who's done a more than trick. two.
2: Okay. Yeah,
1: no, just just a double returnees, uh, which has happened a few times now, because we've had Mike Gale and we've had um, Anthony Horowitz. <laughs> Anthony Horowitz. I was going to say Anthony
2: Horowitz. Uh, uh, I, who else has done it twice? There will be loads.
1: I don't think there are that many actually, but I would say that it's been a joy to actually have returning guests because. The conversations that I feel like you just sometimes dive straight in because mm. there's a level of familiarity there yeah. and yeah, yeah, you yeah, feel yeah. you can you don't have not that we're not not nice to people but you know what I mean you kind of you don't have to do any small talk if it's somebody you've literally never met.
2: Yeah yeah exactly and actually with today's guests, um it was nice that we both had a little kind of catch up before we started going. We? <laughs> yeah.
1: Claire McIntosh is one of those people who is just a good person like you know the way she talks is so I always find it so informative and so kind and I feel like I learn a lot and I just feel better about life when I've been in her presence for a while
2: yeah I wonder if that's because she had um she's had two careers so she's not always been a writer Do you know what I mean she was a plod yeah. for 12 years I wonder if, if that's why but yeah I agree with you I've done events with Claire and she's just such a really lovely warm spirit to be around
1: she is and this we're talking to her this week about a second book the second book in a series that she has started and so it's a really fascinating look at the differences between creating a standalone book where you're doing a whole new world each time and setting up a fictional series that obviously is still rooted in reality but how challenging but enjoyable that's been so for now we'll shut up and let you listen to Claire here's Phil with the intro
2: Blair McIntosh is the Sunday Times number one bestselling writer of seven books. In 2021, she decided with book seven that she'd begin a brand new series centering on North Wales and detective Fionn Morgan. Book eight is the second in that series. It's called A Game of Lies, and we're delighted that the woman who spent 12 years with the plod before going on to sell over two million books joins us on bestsellers now. Two million books.
0: Two million books. It's wild. <laughs>
2: Does that how do you feel? When you hear someone else say that, does it sound like they're talking about somebody that's not you?
0: Do you know what? It 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 does. Um, but then I always have a, a slight kind of grip of fear that I'm never gonna sell any more books. You know, that that, that number <laughs> is never mass. gonna change. That's it. And in 20 years time, when I'm old and grey and doing podcasts or whatever we have in 20 years' time, it's still gonna be two million and um <laughs> Yeah, I'll feel a bit like a, a has been.
2: <laughs> so game of Let's let's start never exactly. Let's start with that. Um uh follow-up to the last party. Well, not a follow-up, but a second in a series. And I'd like you to talk to us first of all about the challenges of creating a series, because you hadn't done that before. You would created standalones.
0: Yes. And I am I'm very much approaching this series as a number of linked standalone books in that they feature the same detective and detectives to a certain extent, although there are new ones that come and go. And it's in the same world, but you absolutely don't need to read one before the other um, because, well, for a couple of reasons. Firstly, because I'm I'm quite lazy and incompetent and I don't think I can hold an entire series arc in my head or know where it's, it's going to be going. But also because as a reader... I'm also a bit of a lazy reader. And if I come across a book that looks brilliant, brilliant premise, you know, really gripped by the um, the shout line, the cover, and I discover it's thick in the series, I'm probably not going to read that book unless I'm convinced that I'll be able to read it and not feel like I'm missing out on those kind of, you know, those. it's almost like the insider jokes and mm. the, you know, the backstory. So I want readers to know that they can pick up you know, this one, A Game of Lies, even if they haven't read The Last Party and still enjoy it. Um, because it, it, it was hard. It, I think what's been really hard is trying to work out how much to spoiler, because you do have to spoil a bit. You know, if people develop, if things happen in the first book, it's sort of inevitable that you're going to need to refer to them in subsequent books. So you have to make a call on what you want to keep back so that someone could read book two and then go down and read book one and which ones you're prepared to to spoil it so it's been a bit of a learning curve
1: yeah well uh obviously phil and i did this as a as a predetermined test because i had purposely not read the first in this series <laughs> so i could come to this one a fresh claire and have it with <laughs> with new eyes as a standalone gosh that's <laughs> such a clever strategy isn't it isn't it it's very well thought out um and yeah i it does it was interesting because i was reading that because you do reference because it's returning characters from the first in that series you do reference that they've already worked on a previous case that happened and uh hopefully this makes you feel better it just made me intrigued as to what happened so I didn't feel like there were enough spoilers that I knew that somebody had died but I didn't feel that it hadn't put me off reading the first book at all and if anything it intrigued me to do so Well, that's good to know.
0: And to be fair, people do tend to die in in crime novels fairly often. So that's not a massive spoiler. And I was thinking as well when I was writing it that when I've written previous books, so I was thinking about I See You, which was my second thriller, and that's a standalone. But the detectives in that standalone talk about their previous cases because they're, you know, they're career detectives. They, Mm. They have formative experiences. That have brought them to the place they are now. It just so happens to be that we're not going to see those. We're, you know, there isn't a, a a book before I see you. We're not going to find out exactly how that case unfolded. But nevertheless, it it had an influence on uh, the the central character. So I think some elements of backstory are going to be in every book uh, whether it's a standalone or a series
2: so in this one there's a reality tv show being filmed in north wales where did you get that idea from
0: uh... <laughs> <laughs> I, I wonder if i am sort of getting lazier and lazier when um when so i i, I started writing the, the series when we were in um lockdown and uh and it, it has it is very very local, it's very local to me. I tell people locally that it's not remotely based on where I live, but I think that's getting harder and harder to get away with because it so <laughs> so blatantly is. Um so I live in North Wales, um, not that far from from the border. I so my daughter actually goes to school now across the border. So I, I spend a lot of time driving across the border. Um, um and so when we were in lockdown, that first book was very much um it had that kind of claustrophobic feel. And of course I started thinking about the, the the next book in the series. And one of the things that happened in 2020 is that um, I'm a celebrity, gay, get me out of here, moved from Australia to North Wales, which was such a random thing. It was, I remember it being announced. And um, in fact, I think we talked about it on the radio, Phil. I can't remember what what you were interviewing me for, but we definitely had a conversation about how to pronounce this castle that it was built. Oh yeah, building. I remember that. No, <laughs> so it was really surreal that suddenly this quiet part of North Wales had all these celebrities and you know cameras, and um, so there was that. And then I also became obsessed with um, Married at First Sight, which is simultaneously one of the most brilliant and awful. Things ever to have been on television um and I wanted to uh I wanted to write about um reality tv uh there was a brilliant book by Ben Elton years ago called Dead yes. Famous yes I absolutely loved it set in a kind of big brother style house with uh, a seemingly impossible murder and I loved that so that kind of fed into this um and yeah, it was. Uh, uh, the, so the, the kind of the concept um, grew out of that reality TV obsession.
2: How hard was it to create? So you've created a show and it's, it's kind of quite clear. The premise of the show is quite clear in this book. So it's not like because some authors might go, oh, it's a reality show and leave it at that. And then our brains do the work. But you've created a format and you walk us through the format whilst we're trying to work out what's going on. So I'm,
0: I'm I'm pitching it, mate. I am. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm off to Channel Four. <laughs> um, it's, I mean, it's almost it's almost two concepts because the concept that these contestants have signed up for, that so the show is called Exposure, and what they've signed up for is a sort of survivor-style reality TV show where they're going to be camping in the Welsh mountains and they think they're going to be doing a a number of survival-style exercises, you know, catching food and making fires and building rafts. But as the cameras start rolling, they are uh, horrified to discover that actually they've they've been conned. And the show that they're on—it's still called Exposure—but it's all about secrets. And to win the game, they've got to keep hold of their secret and expose someone else's. I mean, it's it's brutal. And I, I remember when I pitched it to my editor, she said, "You know, I I love it. I'm just you know, is is it is it plausible? I mean, can we imagine something like that on?" on actual television, is it is it a bit too cruel? And so to convince her that it wasn't too cruel, I looked up some of the worst reality television shows that have ever happened, okay? And, uh, and two of my favourites are, um, so there was one where, I can't remember what it was called, but it was one where people were recruited to be astronauts and put through astronaut training and then sent into space except that we all knew they were like flying above Wolverhampton. Um, and so they were made to look like complete idiots, which is really horribly cruel. Um, and then there was also a show which was called um, Who's the Daddy? And it really did feature a woman who had to spend time with 12 men, all of whom could be her biological father, and she had to find out which one it was I mean that is just
1: brutal yeah it is brutal you mentioned that in the book I think don't you you reference that one a little bit
0: I think I do Yes, yeah I do I'm yeah. so horrified that it actually exists
1: <laughs> I know so yeah I think your premise is absolutely up there so pitch away and <laughs> let's see what happens and um, but I also really like that uh you which I think is what's so fascinating about reality TV is the manipulation involved in it and the calculated nature of it. Um, So for a brief bit of context around that, I produced a a podcast documentary series last year called The Talent Factory for BBC Sounds, Do Listen, um, which was looking at TV talent shows uh, sort of in the golden era of the last kind of 10-15 years and even looking at shows like X Factor and speaking to former contestants from like 2008 that kind of time they were like yeah you arrive day one or you arrive for the auditions and you can see the producers going yeah that's the that's the comedy one that's the sad mum that's the like the casting that goes into it I was I still feel like I'm really naive about that was that something that you were fully aware of that happens before going into this or did it kind of open your eyes to the horror (laughs) of reality tv no I was absolutely fully aware of that and and that's very much what I
0: wanted to explore was was that awful manipulation because there's a double manipulation that happens in reality tv there's the manipulation of the contestants you know where they're um telling telling um certain contestants information about the others and pitting them against each other and riling them up in the way that you know we've seen on on TV um and then there's the manipulation of the viewers where we think we're getting i mean there's nothing real about reality television um and so the, the very occasionally there is a reality TV show where i feel it's it's fair and just and sometimes that happens with the very first show in a in a series where it can feel a bit more authentic and actually I found that with uh, Married at First Sight where the first series the the UK first series was actually rather sweet you know there there were a lot of people who were actually looking for love and trying to make this work and then because I was binging it and I, I went straight on to the second season I remember properly kind of sitting back in my chair and going oh my god what like what's happened because suddenly it had the, the the kind of vibe of it had totally changed and everyone was sort of airbrushed and everyone was was quite toxic and being pitted against each other so yeah I, I was very very aware of that but then last year like a lot of us I uh, was hooked on BBC's The Traitors which is a totally different type of, of show. And that's something that I felt was very fair. And when you listen to the contestants talk about the way they were presented, you don't see any of them saying that they were unfairly edited or that you know something they said was taken out of context. It, it felt like a very fair show.
2: Well, I think there's a difference between that show and the other ones you've mentioned. In the other ones you've mentioned, what's at stake is their lives. Whereas with the traitors, I felt that was a game of skill, actually. The, the, the yes. skill was, can you deceive the other contestants? You knew what you were going into, and it was testing your ability to do that. Whereas the other shows don't test any natural ability. Like Love Island doesn't test any natural ability.
0: Love Island is an absolute horror show. I My, <laughs> my daughter is 15 and uh, uh, um... watches it, and I just, I just want to die every time I walk past the television and hear snippets of the vacuous conversations and I know several older teenagers who desperately want to be on, on Love Island. You know, that that is kind of their
1: their career goal. Wow. And it makes me desperately sad. It really does. Yeah. yeah, I'm kind of the same. I find it really, I find Love Island particularly quite challenging because at my core, I always want to defend popular culture and see value in it. Um, I haven't seen the last few series of Love Island. I wasn't like a massive watcher of it but I did watch one full series like three four years ago just to kind of see if I could get into it and I sort of did get into it for that series but then when you realize it's just it's just all about boys and girls and the the stakes are just setting everything on relationships nothing to do with any kind of depth whatsoever (laughs) it's just with like looks and oh yeah it's just um yeah same what what I'd like to see
2: is I'd like to see that the 40, 50 somethings Love Island. where well, Everyone's, doing
1: just, that. They everyone's are gonna, just a
2: bit jaded. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, they're doing
1: one of those. There isn't Delina really? McCall hosting one that's like the sort of middle-aged Love Island. I can't remember what it's called.
2: But with no she, effort, with zero effort. Do you know what I mean? Everyone's a bit oh, out there's of shape. Be
1: effort. Yeah, I want the zero effort. I, yeah. I want the kind of the challenges
0: about who's going to empty the the compost bin you know like it's in the house and you're you've managed to squeeze in one more tea bag each day and you've got this kind of battle of wills about who is actually going to take it exactly. out that's what i want that's, to that's exactly
2: you have two minutes as a couple to load this dishwasher and agree on how it's loaded <laughs> your time starts now Yeah, you've
1: you've also got like, see how long if you put stuff on the stairs for your teenagers, (laughs) uh, will it stay there until it's like gathers moss? Or will it actually get taken upstairs at some point? I I want to
2: read a quote from Fionn, which sums this up. And and I wanted to ask you about it. But I feel like you've already answered this. So we can just do the quote. I feel like we're really clear, clear on where you are with reality television. Uh, Fionn says quite early on. But they haven't, ma'am. Reality TV is the modern-day equivalent of taking your knitting to an execution. Half the UK will be watching this tomorrow, desperate to see someone's life torn apart. And uh, the reason that's so prescient is not just about reality TV, but it's also about us, isn't it? It's about us. It's about the fact that we can sit here and snide all these shows, but actually we're probably watching half of them.
0: Yes, it is. It is about that. And actually, I so I mentioned um, Ben Elton earlier, mm. and uh, one of his other books um, is called Popcorn. And it's um, the mechanic of it uh, ends up with uh, a woman, an Oscar winner, I think, in her very, very palatial home, being held uh, hostage on live television. It's been kind of hijacked live television and she's going to be killed. And the hijackers, the hostage takers, whatever they are, basically say, um, if, if you all turn off your televisions, I will save her life. And they've got a, um, a sort of live, I don't know, monitor of how many people are viewing. I can't, it's been a long time since I read it. And of course, nobody switches off. So mm-hmm. we have the power to save this person's life, but we're not going to, because fundamentally we're sitting there with our popcorn watching, you know, we're, we're rubberneckers. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is a horrible fact of the the kind of the human psyche that we want to do that.
1: Yeah, to, to counteract that briefly, uh X Factor went away because people did switch off because the format, I think, became so oversaturated in society and the, the cruelness of seeing often quite young kids have their dreams shattered in front of them? What was that round in that, in
2: X Factor? I thought were the cruelest. Was it the, the chairs?
1: This, yeah, the seven chair challenge. I think that's yeah. what it was called. Yeah, where five chair, yeah, seven chair challenge. Um, yeah. I, I felt
2: you... sorry, really sorry, for Dermot O'Leary having to front that. Mm. You could tell even he was thinking, "Well, this is a bit rough." <laughs>
1: Yeah, that was really difficult. So swapping contestants in and out based on audience reaction to an audition. And again, it would be that thing where you'd think you'd have a safe spot and then the producers would bring on, oh, we've just got one last person to come Mm. on. And it was this person who had an incredible voice. So then everyone sitting on those chairs is like, ah, shit. Okay. And then they just have to pluck one off. It's just the, yeah.
0: That is horrible. (laughs) There was a a reality TV show where the... um the contestants believed that they were doing a, an X-Factor style show. And so, uh, you know, as they got through the semi-finals, semifinals, quarterfinals, and then the finalist was, you know, a thought, they were the best singer. And then it was broken to them that actually the competition had been to find the person with the worst voice. And so imagine getting through to what you thought, Phil, come on, that's horrible. It is a horrible thing to do to someone. <laughs>
1: Yeah. <laughs> it feels like, oh, I watched that
2: one.
0: <laughs> You're laughing at that.
2: Well, yeah, it's quite. <laughs> I find it quite. I find the concept funny. It wouldn't be funny. if you... I don't know.
1: There is the hard... also a, a yeah. threshold,
2: isn't there, about it. if you, regardless of whether it's a new show or an established show, if you put yourself forward, I'm fairly certain that none of us have applied to be on a reality show, have we? Oh,
0: well, I was headhunted to be a. Um uh the head hunter the head hunter to be the head yeah. hunter on hunted oh
2: so were you yeah oh, you'd I, have been brilliant at that i love that I show i
0: screen tested um i got down to the last two and i went down to london for my screen test and had to do like a a kind of mock incident room where yeah. i marched around the, the room barking orders at people and um And anyway, they went with an internal male candidate, which frankly is what they always bloody do, isn't it, in jobs? (laughs) Yes, it is. Yes, it is. This
2: this would have been a while back, but it? Was this when the fellow, I can't, I know he's not. I've met him, the guy that used to do it. Peter Thingy, isn't it? That who it was? Yes. But they've replaced him now with the ACC from one of the forces up north. Have you seen that? She's actually still doing the job.
0: I can't. I can't watch it after that because I was I was Too so scared. incensed that I'd been passed over.
2: <laughs> also, you'd have had to be nastier than I know you to be. Do you know what I mean? They kind of like them to be pantomime villain coppers.
0: Yeah. And, and to be fair, I think that's probably why I, I didn't get it um, because I, I don't, I, I never led like that. I never managed no, like that when no. I was in the police. You know, I, I was a, a kind of, I was quite a nice boss. Um, and barking orders isn't my style, so no, it was it would never have worked for me. But it was quite a fun experience.
1: Yeah, it's you, interesting. You found yourself a,
2: saying things like, "They're mugging us off." I want <laughs> AMPR now.
1: <laughs> it's really not my style. <laughs> yeah, no, and uh, but it's an interesting point as well that I'm I'm kind of glad that you didn't do it because you might have had to compromise who you are to do that. Like similarly, like I remember early on in my journalism career getting promoted and uh my not very uh empathetic boss at the time saying telling me that I needed to shout at people more because that's the only way to gain respect and I was like I don't think it is that's oh
2: that's awful yeah. no
1: I think fundamentally I just uh, will stick to writing books rather
0: than trying to be on television
2: <laughs> so we we focused a lot on the reality tv so it's I mean it's a large part of the story but um Dave's a big part of the story as well isn't he
0: oh dave Dave, did, explain is, who
2: Dave is and where Dave came from.
0: You know what's making me laugh about Dave is that that a lot of people who have read advanced copies of A Game of Lies are being sort of very coy about who Dave is. And I, I, I never sort of said, you know, don't say who Dave is, but no. they've collectively taken it upon themselves to just say things like, I'm so glad Fion's got Dave in her life now. Oh, okay. and, and it's like a kind of teaser. <laughs> anyway, I am gonna spoiler it because Dave is, is not a new man but but a dog. Um I just think I mean everyone should have a dog. I've got three, which is, is too many. Um but uh you could argue that Dave is one too many because he has a lot of problems. He's um uh he has separation anxiety, uh he has awful flatulence. Um, which is not so much of a problem in the Welsh mountains, but when Fionn takes him to work, which she does quite often, because you can't really leave a dog that howls and eats the sofa when, when you go to work, um, then that's a bit of a problem. Uh, But he is lovely and he loves Fionn very much. And he plays quite a big role in the book. I think that's maybe
2: that's why people have been coy, isn't it? Yeah. Because of the role.
0: Yeah, I suppose, I suppose. And and obviously I wouldn't, you know, talk about exactly what he does or what Fionn does or, Um, but yeah, he's, he's a major character. Um, and
1: I love him. So which of your dogs is the one that has the flatulence problem?
0: Oh, I've got three Spaniels. So they all, they all (laughs) fart like absolute troopers. Um, (laughs) No, he's kind of base. So Dave is a rescue dog of indeterminate breed who I think is described as being the size of a small Shetland pony. Um, He's very sort of hairy and fairly ugly. And he's based on a couple of very large, lovable, ugly rescue dogs that I know. Um, but he just sort of took on his his own personality really.
2: Shall we hear a bit? Would yeah. you like to read us a bit of the book and then people will get a greater flavor for it? Where are we joining?
0: So we are in um, Ellen Morgan's house. So Ellen is Fionn's ma'am. And Fionn's gone round there. She doesn't live there anymore, but she's got no food in the house, so she's back at MAM's. And they are watching the very first episode of Exposure. Welcome, the presenter gives a dramatic pause, to Dragon Mountain. The contestant's cheers are drowned out by the chorus of It's Penna from Ellen's Lounge, almost certainly echoed in every house in Comquoid, Ellen thinks. Dragon Mountain, indeed, Bobblebach. They were going to use the Welsh name, Caleb says, but Roxy couldn't say it properly. If people can't say it, they shouldn't be on it, Ellen says tartly. Ladies and gentlemen, Roxy Wilde has a twinkle in her eye. You think you're here for a survival show, don't you? There are shouts of yes from some of the contestants. Pam and Ryan exchange uneasy glances. Roxy delivers her punchline with panache. You're wrong. What does she mean? Ellen waits for Caleb to explain, but the lad looks as confused as the rest of them. All of you have a secret, Roxy says, something you've worked hard to conceal from your friends and family. The camera closes in as she smiles wickedly at the seven contestants. You're not only competing for cash, you're competing to keep your secret. You're competing to avoid exposure. Holy
2: fuck, Fionn says. Nice. Now, I wanted to ask you, those. the seven contestants are just in the the show. Then you've got some other coppers that are significant to this. Uh, you've got Fionn's ex-husband, quite significant in this. Um, you've got some peripheral characters around the production of this reality show, all quite central. And the key to me as a reader is I've got to instantly latch on to all of them and know who they all are rather than be a mishmash of names. How difficult a job was that for you as a writer to make sure that each of these had something that I could go, oh, yeah, that's that one, that's the teacher, that's the blah, that's the this?
0: Yeah, it's it's hard. I've written a couple of books now with a lot of points of view. I think the first one was Hostage, which had multiple points of view. And then the last party is, is the same. And I feel like I'm sort of into the swing of that now. It's something I quite like reading. Um, you know, I like the sort of the Agatha Christie style books where we're getting an insight into lots of, of different lives. And it's something that happens to work very well with the themes in A Game of Lies of perception and manipulation and, you know, what, what's, what's true and what's not. Um, I, I think the key is, is to really know those characters yourself as the writer. And if you know them then it, it becomes quite straightforward to make sure that the reader can know them.
2: So how do you um, get to know them? What do you do to get to know them?
0: I um I take them for walks and I take them into the shower and I take them for swims is what I do. So I will when I'm at the when I'm at the stage of a book where I'm developing characters, I will fix on one particular character for a period of time that I'm I'm doing something and that often going for a shower or going for a run or you know going in the lake or something and I will tell myself that for the duration of that activity I'm just going to kind of inhabit that person and think about what they would be doing today and what they would be you know eating for breakfast or uh, wearing or uh, speaking to that day and just really get to know them so I don't sit down and answer 20 questions on what each of my characters might might do which is something I used to do in the beginning i just think them i sort of you know
1: inhabit them i suppose that sounds cool and i know that as you were saying this is kind of quite an agatha christie style to have lots of different characters and it's obviously very good for you know diverting the reader's attention as to who could have done it um But is there ever, did you get any pushback or have you had any pushback over the years when you've been writing these books from editors or publishers to narrow down the list of characters? Because I'm always quite intrigued that once you sort of lock into it, you realise that in most books, there are only ever, there's always generally like, if there's a child, there's kind of one kid because one kid's easier to manage than like two, three, four kids in a family or there's like one sister or, you know, it's kind of quite a narrow field. No, I've never had pushback. Uh
0: they wouldn't dare. <laughs> um no, that's not true. Um I've never had any pushback. Um I think it's all in the execution, isn't it? If if you can pull it off, then you know what why not? I think it's a quite an exciting, quite a rich experience for the reader if it's done well. I, I have read books where it's it's you know done uh it's been done poorly. Um no, I I mean I I'm quite careful, I suppose, in I, I, I try not to have characters that I don't need. So there are, I don't know how many points of view there are in A Game of, of Lies a lot, but there are far fewer than there would be in reality. So if if we think about, um, I mean, uh, as you mentioned at the beginning, I, I was in the police for 12 years um, and you might think that I sort of strive for realism and accuracy when I'm writing about police procedure, but there are elements of, police procedural reality that are incompatible with good fiction and and one of them is with the number of people who would be involved in an investigation. So with a a murder investigation for example you would have this huge incident room and all these detectives all of whom would be doing individual actions that are ultimately part of the, the the big picture but it would be highly unlikely for one detective, for Theon, for example, to be allocated all the important actions, all the ones that end up solving the crime. It's much more likely that she would do one and someone else would do another. But you can't do that in fiction because that would mean, A, introducing the reader to dozens of police officers that they don't really need to know. But also because as readers of crime fiction, we want to root for one hero you know, may- maybe two, we-, we can cope with a duo. And it's fine for bit parts to come up with bits of evidence that are going to help Fionn and-, and Leo. But actually, we need Fionn to be the one who solves the case because that's the-, the hero that we've been rooting for from the start. So you have to depart from reality. So yes, there are a lot of characters, but there are fewer than there would be in real life.
2: But are there some good police insights from you? Surreptitiously snuck onto the page here. So there's a, I'm not going to give any context to this little bit, but um, it will speak for itself. In spite of her assurances to D.I. Malik that she'd rather work alone, Theon feels a buzz inside. This is her favourite part of an investigation, better even than slapping the cuffs on someone, turning over the clues, piecing together the events leading up to the crime, the back and forth as they toss ideas around. And I wanted to know, was that the same for you?
0: Yeah, I think so yeah I did um I I never got massively excited by the actual arrest um and and the the arrest I don't know what it's like now but the actual arrest was a bit of a competitive bid because you you would be um that would be part of your kind of performance review you know how many how many collars you'd had and so certainly when I was in uniform there'd be a kind of a bit of buying for well who's going to get the arrest well you know you had this morning's and i'll have this one whereas i just never i never really cared about that because i did genuinely feel like it was a team effort and i did really enjoy the sort of cerebral challenge that comes from investigating a complex crime i loved fraud absolutely loved fraud which used to for some of my colleagues rigid because it's really you know you're looking at numbers and it's a lot of work for but not very much dramatic gain. I used to find it fascinating and really
1: satisfying. Um, I think I've just got a slightly more analytical brain maybe. That's a real puzzle isn't it with fraud as well to just kind of find that bit of data that tells you that's the clue you're looking for. It is absolutely and that puzzle is
0: exactly what we
1: get from writing books yeah i also wanted to ask you about uh i like this bit it made me laugh Uh, so fion obviously as uh a person of the police force says there's no hands-free system in the triumph so she puts her phone on to speaker and balances on the dashboard from where it immediately slides into the footwell oh fuck fion says which I mean she you've is done that now, na-
2: right that's why that made you laugh so much back
1: in, the, back in the day maybe yeah we have actually now got a thing you can put the phone into but yeah I would <laughs> similarly.
0: yeah I mean Fionn is is a nightmare I I had a really angry email from a reader after the last party about basically saying that Fionn should be sacked um <laughs> and you know it's a fair point it is a fair point because she does she does a number of things in The Last Party that are undoubtedly disciplinary offences and she hasn't got much better in A Game of Lies. And I think that's just another area where fiction departs from reality. You know, everything that she does is ultimately for a good reason. And so, you know, I, I'm not going to sack her anyway. Uh, I'll I'll see, see what her DI does in the next couple of books. <laughs>
2: but also, Claire, I'm not sure I've ever read any detective story ever where the detective's completely squeaky clean by the book because it would be a bit dull wouldn't it
0: it would be so <laughs> boring so boring
2: can yeah, you imagine if that... you got a letter from a, a reader saying claire i feel in the next book you should give fiona commendation <laughs> oh
0: my God. i mean it's just ridiculous isn't it no i mean the, every every character in fiction is a kind of almost a sort of a caricature is is Bigger and, and sort of bolder than real life, aren't they? In the same way that I never really came across more than a handful of baddies in, in my policing career who were kind of, I don't know, Machiavellian, moustache, twirling, mm-hmm. evil masterminds. In mm-hmm. fact, to be honest, I don't think I met anyone like that. They were mostly all a bit thick. Um and
2: do you mean quite the villains boring. now, or the cops? The
0: villains, <laughs> the villains. Maybe a few of my colleagues as well. Um, but you know, most most criminals are—they're not particularly bright. That's why they get caught. You know, it, it's quite rare to come across these these real. I mean, of course, they exist. Um, but but in fiction, we make our baddies baddier and we make our our detectives—you know, the Maverick—and mm. we just we make everything larger than life.
1: So where are, where's your head now in terms of what you're writing? And even if you said at the start that you haven't planned out a full arc for this series, do you have kind of little markers that you'd quite like to explore in a number of books for Theon? I do in terms of her personal life. So I knew where she would
0: be at the end of a game of lies before I started writing it. And I, know where she'll be at the end of book three which I'm working on at the moment um I don't know where she'll be after that and I'm not sure what she'll be investigating um
1: yeah it's it's, it is quite vague it's quite vague are you enjoying writing a series because again I think when we've spoken to other people on this podcast there are some people that love that jumping into the worlds already created Mm. so they can just play with the story and then others who really like creating that that fictional world as a standalone each time are you kind of trying to find a halfway happy place between those maybe
0: yes and i i think i would like to alternate and write standalones and and the series i um i thought it would be easier to write a series because of what you've just said I thought the world is already there and you just give them a new case to solve and I don't and maybe that that's the case for some series but it, it that doesn't seem to be how it works in in this series because the the, the world the world is kind of different you know the, the the world in each book is actually a very small world within a much larger world so although the the geography hasn't changed you know she's still in north wales she's still on the border between england and wales actually in the book i'm writing now is based around a whitewater rafting center where a, a body's been found in an upturned kayak well that's the world of rafting that's a far cry from the world of reality television or the world of you know the luxury resort in in the shore in the last party so it is a new world and Although there are a handful of characters that are the same, all the sort of the civilians are different. All the 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 suspects and the witnesses and the you know the cast of people. So it kind of feels like you are just starting from scratch again, but with the constraints that you have created for yourself. I am forever (laughs) frustrated by the fact that. I was very, very clear in the first book about the fact there was basically nothing around them for 45 minutes, because now I, d- I can't have them hopping to shops or like, you know, <laughs> going back to the office takes half they're the back day. in the it's, car. It's, yes, they're forever driving around, or at least they would be if I didn't take huge liberties. So, for example, in A Game of Lies, they basically set up an incident room at the 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 place where the the murder happened, which just would not happen, but it has happened. <laughs> Otherwise, they're you know they're they're twenty miles away on the other side of the mountain, and everything's being done by phone or online. Natural prices and <laughs> exactly, it's just you know it's not good for the environment. So I've got them sitting in a in a kitchen, you know, running a murder investigation, which is a bit ludicrous. Um, we do what we have to do.
2: So if we do what we have to do, does that mean you had to do a bit of kayaking for this next book?
0: I am psyching myself up. So I, I hate uh, the the whole concept of whitewater rafting. I, um, I've never done it. I've watched my kids do it. I've watched my husband, my best friend do it. And I stayed on the banks um, holding the jumpers. I don't want to do it myself. Uh, because years ago, when I was about 10 or 11, I went on a pgl adventure holiday with school and they made us do that thing where is it called an eskimo roll where you mm-hmm. you tip yeah your... you
2: go under and come back up
0: yeah and i couldn't do it basically I, I i went under and i could not get my kayak or canoe or whatever it was kayak back up and it was utterly terrifying and it wasn't handled brilliantly by the people around me there was you know i it, The other school kids laughed at me. The instructors found it all very funny. I was really frightened. And I don't want to do it, but I think I might have to. So, I don't know, watch this space. I shall put it on my Insta grid if I do it.
2: (laughs) You're very good on your Insta, by the way.
0: Thanks very much. It's not all me. I feel I should uh, be upfront and transparent about that. So, I yeah, we have about 50-50. So I basically all the shit posts will be me um, and all the good ones will will be my brilliant team.
2: (laughs) But I admire your perseverance with it. I had dinner dinner with you last year after an event that we did and you were constantly getting little bits. And then did you put that together or does someone else, you send that somewhere and then they edit it together?
0: No. So if if I do something like that, so I I think I was doing a reel, then that's, yeah, that's all me. Um, But it's quite nice to have the backup of a team who will, Sort of make my books look nice and do things with trending sounds, but I do I, I love it. For me, that ha- working with other people is, um, you know, it's fun. It's a collaborative process. Like I I think we get better results working as a team. Uh, but it also it frees me up to write, which obviously is the job.
1: Can I ask? uh Hopefully not too impertinently, is it enjoyable where you are in terms of the balance of your writing career and marketing yourself as an author and do you always get to do things that you want to do or is it how's the balance there that is a very good question two years ago I hated my
0: job I really really did, did. I, yeah I hated it I was I really struggled and I felt but for about a year I felt a bit trapped actually like I couldn't ever do anything else I, I, you know, what, what else could I do? I, I can't go back to the police now. I think they'd have me after everything I've written. Um, <laughs> and, you know, what what job could I have that would give me the sort of the I, I'm really lucky. I have an incredible, comfortable, safe, secure lifestyle. I, I, I'm not sure I could get a job that would give me that. But I wasn't enjoying writing. I wasn't enjoying any of it. And I think it was just, you know, a, lo- a lot of people had similar feelings actually coming out of, of lockdown. It, it really had changed things for all of us. But fortunately, the love of writing came back, uh, which was a huge relief, largely down to, to Theon, I think. Um, and now I'm in quite a good place again. As for the balance, no, my balance is still wrong. I don't write enough. I have weeks on end where I don't have time to write. I, I've, I'm just, I'm working on a book now but that's after i would say about two maybe even three months of just having zero time because it's all been pr interviews writing articles for magazines to publicize the book um marketing meetings publicity meetings it just the business side of it um and I mean, I a lot of that's down to me. I need to get better at, at focusing. I need to, you know, hit the desk, get the words done before I do anything else. Whereas I have this this kind of um, mentality where I want to clear the decks. I want to do the emails. I want to answer the tweets. I want to do all the, like the little bits. And then my head is clear to write. But of course, you've never done all the little bits, have you? Because they just keep coming.
2: Exactly. And also, Claire, I wonder if part of that is because you're, still relatively new to series writing where somebody like Lee Child sprung to my mind there and I've interviewed Lee several times and his year is mapped out meticulously. So he knows that between this month and this month, it's promo, this month, this month, it's writing, then it's edits, then it's books out. And then that cycle just starts again. And I wonder if it starts to find a pattern for you as you get used to doing these, you know, if you're going to go one a year with these.
1: I don't think
0: it's about um, finding a pattern and getting used to it. I think you I think when you are Lee Child or other authors of his ilk you have the luxury of being able to have a pattern where you can say I don't do promo while I'm writing mm. you know I this is when I write this is I when see. I do my promo um I I'm not Lee Child I you know I can't say to Cheltenham Lit Fest, actually, I, you know, I'm I'm not going to do that event because I'm in my writing phase, because Cheltenham won't ask me again. Um, so it's I think it's a bit different for you know authors at different stages of their careers.
1: Yeah, I wonder if again this is an impersonal question. Uh, I've recently started HRT, and it's been a game changer because suddenly, like, I just lost my kind of drive for doing stuff for like my kind of ambition and uh the, my sort of work ethic that's been such a part of me since ever I started my career in journalism way back that just kind of like literally dissipated and it was terrifying but no clue kind of where it, and that's now coming back which is great
0: are you suggesting I need to up my HRT is this where we're at now with this podcast <laughs> I am um, actually you might so you might have a point I um I mean Phil you can kind of you know zone in or out now as, as you see fit <laughs> I've, I've been on um, HRT on and off since I was 32 because oh, wow. I had surgical menopause at 32 um, but actually stopped it for a period of time in my kind of early 40s I'm 46 now and, and I did go back on it um, sort of about two years ago. So it, it is possible that that is mm. the, you know, that there was a, a link there between feeling feeling better. I certainly feel a lot sharper now. Yeah. Yeah. Back in the room, Phil.
2: You're listening to bestsellers Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so we deal with that. But it
1: all kind of feeds in, right? No, so, it doesn't. No, listen, it yeah. does.
2: It does. I think it's interesting because part of the reason I go quiet is because I feel like I'm underqualified to talk about it. It's not happened in our household yet. Do you know what I mean? So it's kind of most of my experience gained through you and through another friend's wife who talks openly about it but
0: and it is um, important that that we do you know that we that we normalize conversations about menopause and and how it might impact on on our work um and I hope that actually it's quite it's quite good for people listening who perhaps are in there. You know, late 30s, early, mid 40s who haven't got there yet, but might be starting to think that actually that's okay. that they can go to their doctor and ask for HRT if uh, if they think they might need it. Also,
2: as a man, I find it hugely disconcerting when you hear like like what you just said, Natalie, about losing your drive and your ambition. If something like that happened to me and I couldn't explain it. You know, sometimes you feel off your game, but you can go, "Oh well, maybe I'm knackered, or maybe I'm ill, or maybe the kids have been ill, so maybe I'm going to get that in the next." You can explain it, but when it's not explainable, because yeah. it's hormonal, it must be terrifying.
1: Well, that's why, like so many women, feel like they're going crazy, like feel yeah. like you're losing your mind, because all of a sudden you don't. It's it, I, the only way I can describe it is I feel like I was kind of going through it for quite a long time, and it coincided with covid lockdown so a lot of my anxiety and all of that was sort of like well maybe it's just because we're in a global pandemic and maybe I'm just (laughs) feeling this weird way because it's it's all horrendous but um yeah I just think that it is horrendous and I'm still as I'm sure Claire probably is too although your sounds horrendous having to go through all that at 32 um I'm still like just horrified that it's not normalized. Like I chat to my 10 year old son about it, like saying it's like a second puberty. So bless him, he's got like an older teenage uh, sister who's going through like first hormonal things and then a mother who's going through at the other end. But it kind of helps with the conversation, I think.
0: It's, yeah, we I, I've got three teens, um sixteen, fifteen, and fifteen, and we all have very, very open conversations and always had have have had about periods, menopause, puberty, you know, everything. and i I love it because it is so different to how it was when I was a teenager, um you know, in terms of what I might talk to my parents about how we were briefed in school, and to hear my teenage lad sort of talk comfortably about you know tampons it it it, it, i think it bodes well for the future and for their you know that generation's future relationship
2: you've mentioned ben elton twice in this podcast so far and uh, he used to do a brilliant routine about this and this goes back i mean i remember seeing him do this in the late 80s i think i was 14 and there was a brand to rival tampax around at the time called secrets and it was pads sanitary pads and the voiceover on the admin ladies do we have a secret and he goes what's the secret about it half the population of the world are doing it every month why is it a secret but that was the attitude towards even yeah. menstruation never mind menopause
0: yeah absolutely oh i love how wide-ranging our topics
2: are on this yeah. podcast yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> nothing's off limits can i <laughs> no, ask, no, get... ask you one more police question which intrigued me about the book um given especially that you've been a police officer Fionn hates non-answers. We're doing all we can, or the investigation is ongoing, or early indications are encouraging. They're insulting to members of the public who are, for the most part, perfectly capable of reading between the lines. They deserve more. Um, obviously, as a journalist, that chimed with me because quite often, both Natalie and I have interviewed police, and we, what we call it in our side of the fence, we call it proceeding in an orderly direction, where they speak in plod speak and they don't actually give you anything, but you've got two minutes on tape, but it doesn't really say anything.
0: I hate it. I hate it. I mean there, there there is there's so much of me in, in Fion, um maybe not the uh maybe not the law breaking bit. Um yeah, I, I hate that. I think that um of all the things that are wrong with the police, and we definitely don't have time to talk about those, that the biggest problem they have is with communications. And I have, I found that when I was in the police, right the way through, I would never write my statements in police speak. I, uh, I used to get really annoyed when people, so you'd hear over the radio, um, the word, you know, go and check out the premises, right? Um, perhaps there's a, a burglary in progress. And you would hear officers <laughs> say, I'm entering the premise. And it would drive me absolutely <laughs> up the wall. Um, So I would never use this ridiculous police speak. And I would never talk to victims and witnesses in that sort of really vague way. You know, I I would just talk to them normally. Um, So it frustrates me immensely when the police won't give a comment. Um, Or when they give these sort of bland statements. Um, And of course, there's a lot they can't say. And there's there's, you know, often a legal reason why they can't give information, but they can talk like real people. Uh, And I think that if they did, it might make a difference to uh, public perception of them.
1: Yeah agreed um again no time for the for this right now but similarly uh, in a political effect um looking at it through a p- political gaze if i hear one more time we're doing all all we can to help no you're not so <laughs> can you stop saying that you are so <laughs> anyway um claire it's always a joy chatting to you what else ha- but actually before i get your recommendations have you got time for reading right now? Do you still enjoy reading? How's the balance of things that you're being expected to read versus what you actually want to read going? Yeah, I mean, the balance is always a bit
0: off, but it's much better this year. And I will tell you why. (laughs) Uh, So about four years ago, four or five years ago, I started logging what I read. And I would write down um, every book I read, a a brief synopsis, including sort of twist spoilers so that I could really remember it. And then if I quoted on it, so if I loved it enough to recommend it, I would put an asterisk next to it and I would write my blurb on that page. And it was really useful and it meant that I could very quickly give recommendations if I was asked to by a magazine or something. Um, Anyway, what happened is I became ridiculously competitive with myself. <laughs> so Nobody ever saw this notebook. I mean, in fact, the, the, the whole point of having a physical notebook was that it stayed at home because I, I would write some really scathing things about books that I didn't enjoy. And it was quite therapeutic because I wouldn't say that online. So it never left the house. No one ever saw it. But I would look at it and I'd go, oh, by this time last year, I'd read, you know, 17 more books than I have this. And I would just get really, really competitive. I started looking for short books that I could read and it was it was absolutely (laughs) ridiculous and so this year I decided I wouldn't track my books. now there's a downside to that which is that I cannot remember a single book that I've read (laughs) in January but the upside is that I'm just reading for pleasure really and sometimes that pleasure is picking a book from a stack of books that I've been sent by publishers to read sometimes it is uh, choosing a book from a bookshop but I'm
1: reading when I want to read and what I want to read and it's lovely. That's cool so what would you recommend that you have been reading lately that others listening might enjoy?
0: So I've got two books and one was a book that was sent to me, which isn't out yet, but is imminent. And it's the new Shari LaPena, Everyone Here is Lying. Now, Shari LaPena, I just think, is is the absolute queen of suburban domestic suspense. She makes these ordinary streets utterly chilling. And Everyone Here is Lying is absolutely her best book yet. So it's set in a suburban neighbourhood, and um, it's about a child who goes missing, and a father who lies about it because the father was up to no good at the moment where the daughter went missing. So everybody is lying, and it is just—it's uh, yeah, utterly gripping. It felt very much like something that could happen, you know, if not to you, then to your your neighbours. Uh, and I raced through it. So that is Everyone Here is Lying by Shari LaPena, and it is out now. The other book um, that I'm just coming to the end of, and this is just something that I so I was working in Lingham's Bookshop.
2: So I know um, Lingham's. I've done loads of adventures. I know Sue there. She's a friend um, of mine. She's a lovely, wonderful woman and such a force of energy
0: she is she's fabulous and she invited me to work behind the till for independent bookshop week uh which I just jumped at because um doesn't everyone want to use a till I mean I don't know what it is it's this obsession with <laughs> pressing buttons anyway I loved
1: it you know scanning things beep beep um so I was did working a... the... I did not get stressed if like something doesn't go through and then there's like a queue, and you're like <laughs> it was f- I didn't have a
0: queue, fortunately um the only thing that stressed me out is, is fortunately, everyone paid by card. I was terrified someone would pay by cash and that they would do that thing where just at the last minute after you've rung it up, they say, I've got the 5P if that yeah, helps.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> and, and it would not help, reader. It would throw me into panic. So I was worried about that, but that didn't happen. Anyway, while I was at Lingham's, I bought a book called Patricia Wants to Cuddle by Samantha Allen, which is, I mean, it's quite hard to explain. I have um, seen it described as the lesbian Sasquatch book you didn't know you were waiting for. It's it's set in a reality television show called The Catch with contestants, a bit like The Bachelor, contestants competing for um, dates with this eligible young bachelor. Um, And uh, while they're there, they basically meet uh patricia who is um a, a, a yeti <laughs> a lesbian yeti in the woods it's i i can't really describe it it's funny it's edgy it's a little bit weird um it's very very good that's um, great so, you know what? when I you mean...
2: first said that right i thought this is some hip phrase now and what is a lesbian yeti like i don't know i've never heard that phrase but you mean a literal yeti because i've just seen the cover and it's a furry cover
0: an actual yes yeah, yeah. it's not yeah it's not some edgy term for, right. for some some young person no so that's patricia wants to cuddle by samantha allen right <laughs> weird and wonderful
2: the shari le penna um that has been mentioned to us so maybe we will pay this forward and get shari on for that book uh, She did her first radio interview with her first book back in the day so um, it's interesting that you've recommended that. So we'd quite like to take like... an author recommendation, don't we, and then yeah, follow up on we it. do.
1: And in a similar way, I was going to say in terms of, you might have heard about this book, we had recommended to us, I can't remember who recommended it now, was it Cecilia or I can't remember. Um, a book called Shark Heart by, I think it's Emily Harbeck, uh, which is, uh, a love story about uh, between a couple, and the man in the couple realizes he's slowly turning into a shark. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Similar thing. Like I'm, I'm about sort of a third of the way in, and you're there. Like it's, it's written in such a touching way. It's... And is it? Is it?
0: You're enjoying it then? Obviously, yeah, loving
1: it. Loving it. So similarly, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm into this like Yeti cuddle book brilliant i love that
2: i haven't started it <laughs> <laughs> um claire thanks so much for coming back we love you on this podcast i hope you know that i hope you know that how much we love you
1: well i do now thank yeah. you i love you too yeah yeah and i and haven't I... stalked you yet for a drink yet but it will happen oh my god let's do it i would <laughs> love that
2: in north wales and then you'll end up in a center of a fiant plot somehow <laughs>
0: We could, um, I mean, if you'd like to come white water rafting with me, um, I'm
1: good. Thanks.
2: <laughs> Why not? Why don't you want to do that now? I think it'd be great for you. Uh, I'll see, film it lo- and we'll put I it all over the love, socials.
1: I love a water slide. Like in terms yeah. of a theme park, a water park is my preferred location. Going down like slides and like leap to leaps and stuff like in a cheap. Um, But the white water rafting, not so much. Mm.
2: Yeah. You never know till you've tried it.
1: Yes.
2: A game of lies is out right now. Go and devour it, and go and imagine yourself on this reality show. And in the meantime, Claire's off to Dave to push this to see what a Dave commission <laughs> is. Watch this space. I feel at this point I should probably just check if everything's okay with you, because. <laughs> Why? Well, because with Mike Gale, you yeah. nearly put him off writing for life. True. And then with Claire McIntosh, you basically asked her whether she should operate HRT. <laughs> and it's I almost like you've that. lost – have you lost your filter?
1: Uh, or did I – is this actually the real me? Uh, I don't know. My husband James has said that a few times as well, but I think it might just be stage of life. And not that I don't care what I say, but I just – I don't think I'm saying these things unkindly I'm just really interested in the heart of the matter you know and I'm not afraid to go there but I would actually say in my defense I think I've actually always been like that I maybe just disguised it a bit better because even when I was doing loads of interviews with huge film stars and Mm. uh, musicians back in my radio one days my uh, friend Fran who's still a really good friend of mine she always used to say to me I was kind of like a like a like a soft assassin, as in I'd do these interviews and be really smiley and chatty and warm, and then at some point I'd be like and Thanks. just have this killer Strange. question. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. That is that's definitely what you've done with the last two episodes. Is that these yeah. questions have come from nowhere? So you've not you've <laughs> not kind of you've turned left with that indicated. Yeah, to to
1: do a massive um another massive name drop uh because it always makes me smile is I've been fortunate enough to interview Jay Z. Yeah, a few times in my career, and one time I was interviewing him, and uh, I knew that I'd I'd you know I I do prep. I have always thought these things in advance. It's not yeah. like they do just pop into my head. Well, sometimes no. they do, but anyway. So I had a list of questions, and with somebody like Jay Z, you don't have that much time, and so you know you need to hit certain topics. And I'd kind of I thought I'd done quite a a natural sounding chat for maybe like ten minutes, and then I did need to do a bit of a swerve, and so I said. Okay, like this next question may come a bit out of left field. So apologies for that. And he just went, What? The next question? I feel like the whole interview up to this point has been <laughs>
2: <laughs> excellent.
1: Has been like random questions. I was like, yeah. Okay, great.
2: <laughs> you know, the police use it as a technique. Did you know that? Do they? Yeah. So because if you're telling a lie, um, they mm-hmm. think it's harder to sustain a lie if they don't do the interview chronologically.
1: Yes. Yeah.
2: So they'll be chatting away and then they'll go, Boom. A mm-hmm. random question, and your brain goes, random, random. And if you tell the truth, it doesn't matter that it's random. But if you're no. not, it's harder to. Yeah. So they do it on purpose.
1: Maybe, you know, that's why I'm also one of the world's worst liars. And perhaps that's just because that's how my brain works. So, yeah, I think it is always quite scatty. So I can't keep track of any lies. So I'm just incapable.
2: It's interesting laughing. that your husband has mentioned it, though. Yeah. Has he said it just of late? Yeah. Yeah, well, there we go. So maybe you need to up your HRT levels, not clear. Maybe that's what it is. All
1: right. back off. Uh now, just I at think, a stage um, of my
2: life where I'm just saying things direct.
1: I think I am, yeah. And I think <laughs> no, I am. If you, if you go to my parents, I think I was like this as a child. And then I feel like it's more maybe it was just suppressed by society for decades. And yeah, anyway, promise me, um, uh, I promise you, mm. I am still a good person. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just interested in <laughs> lots of random things. And that's what you get on bestsellers.
2: Well, the true test will be whether Mike Gale and Claire McIntosh come back for a third time. Let's see.
1: There you go. <laughs>
2: <laughs> In the meantime, if you'd like to um, help Natalie through this difficult period, then we're both available at Kofi, which is ko-fi.com slash podcast. And we normally say you can buy us a brew there, but maybe you need to be buying us something else. I don't Who knows? <laughs>